Uh, good to see you guys this morning. Welcome to Redemption Peoria. If you're new, we're glad you're here again. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Revelation. We're going to be looking at the back half of chapter 19 and then uh, all of chapter 20 together this morning. Uh, we've been in a series. We have one more time in Revelation. Uh, we've been walking through the book of Revelation kind of thematically a couple chapters at a time. It's a strange book, um, and we're trying to make sense of it uh, for our modern ears and our modern eyes. The original readers would have understood because John is using this apocalyptic language that would have made sense to them, and so a lot of our work is to kind of translate what was actually being said to the original hearers of this letter, these seven churches that John writes to in uh, Asia Minor in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Um, and so just so you know where we're going to be going, we'll have one more week in Revelation. As I, as I said, we'll round out the book in chapters 21 and chapter 22 next week. We'll also be celebrating baptisms, and so it'll be cool. Ending to our series in Revelation, we're talking about the new heaven and the new earth, and we're going to see expressions of new life uh, in baptisms. And so it should be a great time if you're able to join us next week. And then we will start a series on Advent. Advent means arrival, this expectation and arrival, and we celebrate it with the, the rest of the global church as the four weeks leading up to the arrival of Jesus uh, being born, the Messiah being born. And so we'll take um, a series doing that. And the title of the Advent series for us here at Redemption Peoria is going to be called In the Waiting. And so what does it look like to have hope in the waiting, joy in the waiting, peace in the waiting, love in the midst of waiting for Christ to come back a second time. Uh, and so that's where we're going to go, and then we'll have a couple of standalone sermons, and then we will jump into uh, 2024, which will be exciting. Um, there's only five more weeks until Christmas. Do you guys realize that? Which is, which is kind of crazy. Um, and just for you know, we'll, we'll have on the app, too, that Christmas Eve is on a Sunday. The 24th lands on a Sunday this year. And so instead of doing Sunday morning service, we're actually not going to do that. We're just going to do two services uh, in the afternoon and early evening, Christmas Eve. So we'll have a 3.30 and we'll have a 5 o'clock service. Again, the details will be on the app. Um, and that'll be all of us in here together. There will not be any redemption kids, uh, just so you're aware of how to plan accordingly if you're going to join us for that time. But Christmas is right around the corner. We were having a... Uh, a lively debate in our community this last week about Christmas movies. And, and somebody in our community was kind of making this claim that like Home Alone's not a Christmas movie, which, right? Heresy. <laughs> We're going like, it's crazy. I'm not going to say who it was, but they might be in the room right now. I don't know. Uh, calm down. Calm down. Calm down. Okay. So we're talking about, like, what, what are your favorite Christmas movies? I always love around the holidays asking that question, or like, what do you love to eat during Christmas? And and, and one movie that has been classically shown multiple different ways over the years is based on actually a story, and it's Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. I don't know if familiar you are with the story. Uh, it was originally released in 1863 and has been, again, translated into multiple plays and movies and things like that. Um, if, if you're not familiar with the story, the, the main character, his name is Ebenezer Scrooge, and he lives like a terrible life. <laughs> He cares about money and greed, and you see at the beginning of the show, whatever form you watch, how it affects everyone around him. And then one night, his old business partner comes and tells him, hey, you're actually not living the life you need to live. You're going to be visited by three spirits, a spirit of Christmas past, a spirit of Christmas present, and then a, a, a spirit of Christmas future. And in the midst of that, these Christmas spirits take Ebenezer Scrooge to these moments to kind of get a bird's eye view to see, man, this is, this is how the way you're living your life is affecting everyone else. He gives them these visions. And the last one, uh, Christmas future, uh, shows him how he actually dies and shows him he's at his gravestone. And in, in the original book that doesn't always translate in the movies, um, 
everybody's really happy that his guy's gone, that he's dead, because he's just toxic to everyone he's around. And so he realizes, like, this, I shouldn't be living this way. And in the book, he actually uh, says this. Scrooge says this. He says um, to the ghost, he says, why show me this if I am past all hope? Assure me that I may change these shadows you have shown me by an altered life. And then if you know the story, he wakes up and he changes the way he lives. And it affects everyone around him. And what John is doing in the book of Revelation, specific as we're getting towards the end, these these images of judgment, of God's good judgment on a wicked world, it's these visions that ought to, like like Ebenezer Scrooge, make us go, man, I I don't want to live that way. I want a changed life. I don't want to end up like that. So it should be like smelling salts for us as we read these and we realize, man, if you are really following the dragon, it's not going to end up well for you. And so follow the lamb in the midst of your life now. Even the things you cannot see that we're saying that God is going to guarantee that he's going to make all things right before he makes all things new. And we need to be aware of that. There are two options in front of us. What kind of life do we want to live? And again, we get this vision of the final judgment that we really started a couple of weeks ago that we'll wrap up today. Eugene Peterson says it this way about this vision of final judgment. He said, one function of the vision is to train our perceptions so that we will never overlook it or again, overlook it. At the same time, the vision raises our adrenaline levels so that we bring our energetic best to the high spiritual drama that we participate in every day as we confess the Lordship of Christ. Once having seen this, we're not likely to fight a half-hearted war against a whole-hearted enemy. This idea that some of us, we've talked about this, we just kind of get lulled to sleep because of our culture. And the original churches that this was written to, they were getting lulled to sleep because of the Roman culture that they were just beginning to live in step with. And once we see what actually happens if we follow that path should shake us up and realize, man, we can't just go on living like normal. We have to give everything because we actually have an enemy that comes after us really, really hard. I think it's helpful in the midst of us to try and figure out what does that actually look like? And what we're going to see and what we've seen in the book of Revelation, but what I want to highlight in the text today is these contrasting images that John continues to give artistically in the midst of Revelation. He even does it to the churches, if you remember. He says in Sardis, man, you, you, you look like you're alive, but you're actually dead. Those are contrasting images. He says to the, to the church in Laodicea, you know, you, you think you're rich, but you're actually poor. You think you're clothed, but you're actually naked. And he does this continuously. He says, like, there's a way of the lamb and there's a way of the dragon. He contrasts these images on purpose to help us go, you have a choice. You have two roads in front of you the way you live. Make sure you're choosing the right way. And we're going to see this as we're going to look at some contrasting images, four specifically that we'll pull out of the text this morning. And good, they should be smelling salts for us to wake us up out of our apathy and go, okay, what I say, what I do, it, it matters. It matters how I live my life. And again, some of us just think our sin that, that word is, is just a category for bad behavior. Oh, it's not that big a deal. It doesn't really affect me or it doesn't really affect anybody else because that's what our world would tell us. And what John is going to tell us, even in the midst of this, is like, no, this is really big stuff. This is a really big deal. And God is not about it. And he is going to wipe it away one day. 
And John's vision of judgment ought to make us feel differently. It ought to make us act differently. Sky Jatani, talking about sin, describes it this way. He says, sin as a power goes beyond our behavior or even our rebellion against God. Beyond something we do, sin is also a force that has hijacked God's creation and his creatures. It is an invading enemy holding us captive from which we must be set free. In the Bible, sin is recognized as the hostile spirit of rebellion animating all of God's enemies, even including us. We just have to be aware of this in the midst of our lives, not to sleep on it. It's something real, and we have choices in front of us. And so this choice is, again, what, this, what we're going to see in the text. It should help us process to not follow the way of the dragon, the way of the world, the power and the systems marked by pride and selfishness, which we would all default to in our own heart. But we have an opportunity to follow the way of the lamb, this upside-down way of Jesus that's marked by humility that actually leads to life. So we're going to look at the final battle at the back end of chapter 19, and I'll actually be referencing some of the texts we went through last week. And I really, uh, in the midst of this, I want us to pull out four different contrasting images for us to go, you can go this way, or you can go this way. And what are the results of going this way? And what are the results of going that way to help us see, like, man, our life matter, our choices matter. We need to pay attention to those things, because just like the character of Ebenezer Scrooge, we should see this vision and go, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't want to live that way. We can live differently. So that's where we're going to go in the midst of our text. So let's jump in. Revelation chapter 19. Let's start in verse 11, where we left off last week. I'm going to read verses um, 11 through 16, and we'll look at the first contrast that we see in front of us. It says this, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, those are crowns, and has his name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name of which he is called the Word of God. Verse 14, and the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron, uh, a rod of iron. He will tread on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has, has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. First contrast we're going to see in the midst of our choices of of, of which way we're going to go. Uh, There is a rider on a beast in chapter 17, verse uh, 3, that we looked at last week. And then there is a rider on a white horse. That's the first contrast we see. There's a rider on the beast, uh, represented of a prostitute. We talked about that last week. And she's riding on a beast, which represents Satan and the way of the world, the way of the dragon. Or there is a rider on a white horse named Jesus that we just heard from. Who are you going to follow? And what this white horse, as he comes back a second time and he's going to make all things right, we see and we've talked about that his, his robe is full of blood. It's already pre-bloody because his blood is the way we have victory over this enemy. 
It's his word coming out of us, a, a, a sword out of his mouth that divides right and wrong what is actually true, what is actually false. And this beast and this rider of this beast operates in deceptions and operates in lies. And so when this rider on the white horse comes, when Jesus comes back a second time, he's going to make all things truth. The deception that we see will be put away forever. And we have an opportunity to follow him just like this army is following him. My wife, I think she's, I think she's technically blind. Uh, I don't know. I'm not an optometrist, but ever since I've known her, she's worn contacts or glasses. I have always had really good vision. Everybody tells me when you're 45, you have to start getting readers, which I found to be true. I'm still not wanting to use the readers because I'm stubborn. And I don't want to depend on them. But when I put them on, it's like a magnifying glass when I read the text now. Um, regardless, my wife, she just can't see at all. And so ever since I've known her, uh, when she has glasses and she wears her glasses at night, usually contacts during the day. Uh, but when I put her glasses on, has anybody ever done that to somebody that doesn't wear glasses and you put glasses on? I'm like, I don't know how you function as a human without these things on or in your eyes, and she usually doesn't have them on, because I was like, you are totally blind. My vision gets really blurry. I can't see correctly. And what the Bible tells us because of what happens in Genesis 3, because of our sin, because of our imperfection, because of our selfishness, is we have blurred vision everywhere we go. We have blurred vision. We need uh, the rider on the white horse to correct, and one day he will make all of our vision clear. But right now, even in the in-between, even if you've submitted your life to Jesus, there's still blurriness because of sin in our vision. Our vision gets blurry in a couple different ways. One way is, is, is we can't see our sin clearly. On our own. We can't see our own deception. And even the word deception in the definition is like you can't see it. And so we make decisions, even as followers of Jesus, going, man, like, I, I, I think this is okay, or I'm not really sure about this. We need outside people to help give us clear eyes to see and go, hey, this is not okay what you're doing. We also need God's word, which is what his title is described, this writer. We need God's word as the North Star, as the plumb line to go, listen, this doesn't match up. Your behavior doesn't match up. Oh, okay, I've been seeing blurry in the context of my sin, clouds my vision. Not only can we not see because of sin uh, clouds our vision and we can't see our sin accurately, some of us can't see the cross accurately. We're blurred in our vision with that. Even though we've made a decision to follow this white horse, to follow Jesus, man, we still think that our efforts, like, like Stephen was just saying, our hope is not in Christ alone. Our hope is our own behavior or what we do, and we don't see clearly the sacrifice that Jesus has made to make us right, to make us clean. But one day, what this text is saying, and what it will continue to say, is that all of that deception will be gone. That's the hope for the Christian, that right now we live in this kind of in-between. We need these glasses of our community and the Bible to help us see. But one day we won't need glasses anymore because Jesus will make it all the way right. And so we have an opportunity in the midst of, are we going to follow this rider that looks really good on the outside, this prostitute that's dressed well and we're kind of attracted to, just like John was marveled at the, this prostitute and, and, and the angel says, don't, don't believe the outside. Let, let me tell you what really happens on the inside. We can follow that rider or we can follow this rider, the rider of Jesus. And so that's the first thing that we look at in contrast of going, okay, what do we need to do? 
pick up in verse 17 of chapter 19. It says, And then I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice, he called to the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army, and the beast was captured. I love that, just that that nuance of like, everybody's gathering up, ready for war. And it's like, there's not even a battle because Jesus has already won, right? And the beast, verse 20, is captured, and with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into a lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gourds with their flesh. Again, this is like weird imagery, right? Like this is like, what is happening? But again, go back to the Christmas carol, and these ghosts present some weird stuff happening. Why? To shock Ebenezer Screws and going like, you don't want to live this way. And this is what Revelation is doing in this apocalyptic language. It should be shocking to us to go, wait a second, what are my options here? So the second contrast we see, uh, even if we go back to uh, verse 9 of 19, there's two different meals laid out for us. There's the supper of the lamb, which we saw in verse 9, or there's the great supper of God, which we just read in verse 17, which is really about judgment. And this great supper of the Lamb, we're invited to be made whole again. We're invited to be made right again. It says, blessed is those who are invited to the supper of the Lamb through the person of Jesus, through this writer. We can be made whole and right again. The other option of a supper is this supper of God, which is his judgment, which is our flesh gets torn apart. We get taken away limb by limb. It does not end well. You do not want to be at that supper. You want to be at the supper of the Lamb. Let's continue on. Let's jump down to verse 1 of chapter 20. It says, And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding his hand and the key to a bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nation's any longer until the thousand years were ended after that he must be released for a little while then i saw thrones and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed i also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of jesus and for the word of god and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. For this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the ones who share in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. All right. These are the most confusing passages, I think, in all of the book of Revelation, these six verses. And these six verses are typically what people want to talk about 
out of the whole book of Revelation. <laughs> so what I want to do is give kind of the three main interpretations, even within Christianity, of these three verses. And if you've been around church a while, if you've been around Christianity a while, and you get into this conversation with folks, um, it can be kind of daunting. Because sometimes Christians that have studied this, um, and, and, and they're not as kind with outside folks, they go, well, I'm a premillennialist, pre-rapturist, and you go, I don't, I don't even know what you're saying. I don't know what words you mean right now. And then you just feel like, I don't, I don't even know if I can engage this conversation. It's confusing. I don't quite understand it. And then um, sometimes those high intellectual folks make other people just feel like less important which even if it's not their intent, sometimes that happens. And so what I want to do is I want to just give a very um, elementary perspective on how these verses are interpreted, this thousand-year reign in the millennium, so that we can give a better understanding. I think it's worth going into a deeper dive on your own. We're not going to do that here for obvious reasons, but um, hopefully uh, we will pull out like why this is important in the midst of the conversation and understanding the judgment of Christ. So there's an image that has been helpful for me. Uh, I know that's small, but um, this, this comes from a book called Revelation to You by Tim Chester, which is a very helpful read. And these are the three kind of main interpretations of this thousand-year reign. There's premillennialism, there's postmillennialism, and there's something called amillennialism. So premillennialism says that, uh, and, and I'm just going to kind of even read from this, as you can see on the chart, when Christ returns, when there's going to be a final judgment. Premillennialists believe that Christ will return before the millennium, the thousand-year reign. They, uh, he will reign on earth for a literal thousand-year period. When Christ returns, deceased Christians will be raised, and those believers who haven't died will be given resurrected bodies. Christ will be physically present on the earth and reign uh, as its king, bringing peace and prosperity with believers reigning alongside him. Unbelievers will continue to live on the earth, and many, though not all, will return to Christ. The thousand-year reign of Christ will end with the great battle of Armageddon, which, after the final judgment, will take place. So that's one interpretation of how to read this text and understand it. The second, post-millennialism, as you can see up there, uh, believe that Christ will return after the millennium, after this thousand years. They believe the millennium will be uh, a future golden age of gospel advance in which the church grows and exercises a positive influence in society. And after this golden age, Christ will return for the final judgment to take place. And then the last one at the bottom, which is kind of like post-millennial, but it's, it's different. Um, there, there's not a delineation. Amillennialists uh, believe there is a millennium, but just they don't think it's off in the future. Right? Instead, they would argue that the millennium is an image describing the present age of the church. After Christ resurrects, he sends his spirit and acts that, that until Jesus returns. Um, the millennium is therefore a period between the first and the second comings of Christ. Are you confused yet? Maybe some of you are going like, oh, I know this. This is kind of elementary, right? Like, but th here's, here's why this matters. Because some of us go like, well, who, like... Does it even matter? Like, here's how it's bled out over the years, just in a history of these different interpretations. And again, I think there's room for all three of these interpretations. I would lean one way, but I think there's in evangelical Christianity, you could, you could interpret it in any one of these three ways. Here's how it's played out even in history, just to give us a better flavor of like why this, why this actually matters to us. Um, when Constantine, who was the emperor in, in 312, made Christianity the state religion, 
This is when the Catholic Church was born. The universal church was born through Constantine. It was kind of under the assumption that this is the beginning of those thousand years. There's going to be a reign of Christ, and then Christ will return. We're going to make state and church a big deal so that we are going to be the ones that change society. And once we change society, Jesus will return, and he'll make all things right. Augustine, if you're familiar with that name, this is 1200s, he leaned on the bottom uh, 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 millennial. He would go, now, I don't really ascribe to that kind of post-millennial view. Uh, when he wrote The City of God, which was a book that, that was like the pop, most popular seller for about a thousand years, which was crazy, he believed, no, it's actually this in-between time that we're in right now until Christ returns. That's how it works. The Reformers and the Puritans, about 1500 they thought the Catholic Church was still a part of the Roman Empire. And so they pressed against that, and they go, actually, no, I, I don't think what the Catholic Church is doing well. And the beginning of the Reformation, in their mind, was like the beginning of the millennial. Like, okay, if we change it and we do it differently, we're going to see this reign of Christ around the world, and then he will return. The pilgrims that came over to this land, to this new land that was uh, foreign to them but home to others. They thought, okay, we're going to create a new society. We're going to have uh, God values in the Bible, kind of this manifest destiny that, that if we do it right, if we do all the things right, we will be the start of the millennium. And then we see in the 1900s, if you're familiar with the history, in Nazi Germany, they spoke of the Third Reich. That word Reich in German uh, literally means realm or kingdom. They thought if they purify uh, the world of Jewish people, they would start the millennium, which is crazy. Right? And so you see how uh, the, the misinterpretation of the way uh, people have looked at this text can bleed into the way we live. And again, uh, some folks, even uh, the missionary movement in, in the West in the 18th and 19th century, people like John Edwards believed that the power of the Spirit, that they would be, institute the coming reign of Christ, that if they did the right things and the church took over society, and then that would be the marker, then then Christ would return and make all things new again. The problem, even in that context, was we had two world wars, and then they go, actually, it's not getting better. They were kind of like, things are getting better, things are getting better. Look at, look at, look at, look at. And then we had these wars, and it's like, oh, maybe not. And so it's just important for us to realize how um, these different interpretations play out in our history. And I care less about like, uh, um, how we would interpret uh, when Christ is going to come back and when that comes, and, and more about like, how are we functioning in the midst of our world even right now? Because what the millennial reign does in these six verses is it's really the present reign of Christ over his people through his word. And the problem is we define reign. If we put the cultural lenses of Rome or America or anything else, when we think of reign, we're going to misinterpret what the Bible means when it's talking about reigning. Because we would think reigning means like, okay, we're going to push these people in a certain way. We're going to um, create the agenda instead of going, actually, um, reigning means this hidden reign, this glory and shame, this power and weakness, this victory through death. 
So in the present, the rain, um, and what I'm concerned about, and, and, and hopefully we're pressing into, is like, what does it look like to have a cruciformed pattern during this millennium? Whatever one you interpret and whatever one you pick, could we redefine rain, not in the way of the culture that we're going to be these people up top, but no, that we're actually going to flip it on its head and go, no, what it means to rain is to serve. Like what it means to move into this uh, way of, of Christ living is that it's cruciformed, it's cross-shaped, it's in the shape of the J. It's expressed not in the domination of others, but in mission to the nations and suffering for Christ, which is what we see in the text in Revelation. Right? Revelation 12, 11 says they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Tim Chester puts it this way, and we'll kind of close this, this section. Um, in Revelation 20, this is what he says. Verses 1 through 6, which we just talked about, describes the reign of God's suffering people through the faithful testimony. It's not the kind of reign that uh, humanity expects, but it's consistent with the victory through suffering that we've seen throughout Revelation, especially chapters 10 through 11, and indeed throughout the New Testament. So I know that's kind of like a sidebar, but like we have to address like how this has been interpreted or maybe misinterpreted. And for us as Christians to go, okay, what does it look like to trust Christ in the midst of him returning this final time, whether the millennium has started, where it hasn't started yet? Like how do we press in to be Jesus followers to learn what it means to die for the good of others? That would be the hope for us. Let's continue. We looked at two contrasting images and let's look at two more as we kind of wrap our time up let's go down to verse 7 of chapter 20 that says and when the thousand years are ended satan will be released from his prison and will come to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth gog and magog to gather them for battle their number is like the sand of the sea and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were to be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in these books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were with them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written, found, excuse me, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, it was thrown into the lake of fire. Here's two more contrasts from the text to help us understand, man, we have this choice in front of us. Which way are we going? Uh, the first that we see from this, this passage is there's two books. There's a book of what I'm calling the accounts, verse 12. And then if you don't pay attention, there's actually another book called the book of life in verse 15, which references, um, we'll see it in chapter 21, verse 27, the Lamb's book of life. 
So if we see this judgment of God as he's thrown the enemy who deceives people now into this pit, eternal quarantine, he's thrown the prophet in there, he's thrown everyone that deceives into that, and now there's a judgment that comes with what we've done with our life. And John said there's books that are opened and these books are the accounts of everything you've ever done. And, and when uh, this gets caricatured all the time, like we get to the, the, the gates of heaven and then somebody opens up a bunch of books and it has every detail we've ever done, right? Like this is typically, and then, and then we think that, man, hopefully my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. And if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then I'm in. I should get to go through. And then that's all we talk about. But John actually talks about a bunch of books of records and then he talks about the book of life that somebody's name is written in. These are two different accounts. So we have a choice. Are we going to rely on the books of all the things we've ever done in our life, thinking our good outweighs our bad? Here's the problem with that. Even if your good outweighed your bad, which it doesn't, you still have bad. You still are separated because of your sin from a holy and righteous God. You cannot get in on your own er uh, er effort, on your own merits. It will not happen. And so what do we do? Do we, do we focus on the things we've done in these books, these records of everything we've ever done in our life? Or do we go, no, I'm going to put my position and following the rider on the white horse. And that's how my name gets written in the book of life. Because that's the only way I can be made clean. That's the only way I can be made righteous when I give my life to Jesus because what he has done for me and he shows me that I need him, that there's nothing I can do in these other books to get right with God, it's only in repentance and faith and trusting in Jesus that you're made holy and right and new and your name is now in the book of life. So we have a choice of like, are we just going to continue to rely on ourselves, or are we going to rely on the only gift that will get us back to God, which is Jesus? So that's one contrasting image in the midst of the text. The other one is our ultimate destination. There's a lake of fire in verse 15 that talks about where Satan and these deceivers will be thrown into and anybody that's name is not written in the book of life will be placed there for eternity. Or we're going to see in a couple of chapters in verse chapter uh, 1 of chapter 22, there's a river of life, a new place that we can live forever. So now we have these opportunities in front of us. Do we want to follow um, the, the prostitute and the beast? And if we do that in our own selfish desires, and we go, you know what? I'm going to figure it out on my own. I don't need Jesus. These Jesus people are crazy. I can figure it out on my own. I'm good enough on my own. If you decide to follow that writer, here's what you are guaranteed. You are going to get a supper, a supper of God's judgment. Your flesh will be torn away. It will not be good for you. You will rely on your accounts, not on the accounts of Jesus. And then what it says is ultimately you will be placed in the lake of fire. Now, this is a whole other conversation. It could be a whole other sermon on the interpretation of hell. Because again, there's a wide spectrum, even within Christianity, of how people would describe hell. So I don't want to do that right now. What I want to do is say, like, listen, hell is a place you never want to be. It's the absence of everything good. It's the absence, even, even for us right now that live and don't follow Jesus, there's still good coming to us because of God's common grace. We can still feel warmth. We can taste something good and enjoy it. Everything that is good, any sliver of good will not be found in this place called hell. It's the absence of everything good because God will not be present in it. And you do not want 
to be there. The reverse of that is when we're going to get, and we're going to see next week what a, a way to celebrate this new earth, this place where all the deception, all the pain, all the tears, everything that has ever hurt us will be wiped away and we will be fully present. We'll be able to see it totally clearly and we'll worship God in this new place unhindered forever. So we have the opportunity in front of us, just like Ebenezer Scrooge does, and even as this book is written to these churches to wake them up, to go, listen, you don't want to go this direction. You've been slowly moving in this direction because of your culture, and what I'm saying is you need to move back to this direction. This is where life is found. And again, there's lots of conversations in our world of people that just go, well, it's not that big a deal. Oh, it doesn't matter. Like they're being deceived even in the moment of that statement. And only Christ and his spirit can make us clean, can break us and break the chains of our sin and give us those types of freedom. What we're going to see next week again is this new reality that these are promised things, that we don't see them, they're far off, just like Ebenezer Scrooge, but we want to go like, I don't want to live that way. If we really see it and we really interact with the text and God changes our hearts through his spirit, through his word, to go, no, I don't want to live that way. I know I'm moving that direction. I want life. And you only find it in the person of Jesus. Isn't there hope that one day we won't struggle with our sin any longer? That's the hope for us this morning. That in us, in the midst of our decisions and our choices, that we would learn how to die now, die to ourselves, die to our flesh so that we can live forever. Instead of living now for the moment and realize it's not going to end up well for us. That's the hope in the midst of this judgment that is going to come because God is good and righteous. And hopefully we're called as kids in the midst of it. Let's pray. God, would you help us? in this conversation that is strange and in the distance, which we don't know when it's going to happen, God, would you help us make right decisions? Would these words shake us at our core to go, man, what kind of life am I living? If this is true, which we believe it is, there are two paths in front of us. Father, would you help us pick the way of Jesus, the way of the Lamb? Would you help us eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb? Would you help us understand that our name is written in the book of life through repentance and faith in what you have done on the cross, nothing that we have done, but what you have done? And would you help us give hope that one day all the pain and the hurt and the deception will be put away forever and we will see you face to face clearly? That's our hope. Would you help us do it? this morning, and those that um, don't find themselves in this category, would you have conversation with their heart and make yourself so beautiful that they would turn and repent and follow you? We ask that you would do it. We pray it in your name. Amen.